Welcome to Sports Pages, a new podcast from Joe, which digs into the stories behind some of the greatest sports books ever written. I'm Simon Clancy, and each week I'll be interviewing the authors of those books to find out about the proposal, the process, and what it felt like to have that first copy in their hands. And my guest this week is the Australian writer and journalist Anna Crean, whose book Night Games, Sex, Power and a Journey into the Dark Heart of Sport investigates the macho sexual culture of Australian rules football, misogyny, the nature of sexual assault and one player's trial for rape. The book won the 2014 William Hill Sports Book of the Year Award. Anna, welcome to Sports Pages. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Simon. I'm kind of fascinated by how people got into writing. And I've read a number of interviews that you've done and things. And I saw something where you wrote, I usually reply to this question by saying that I can't actually do anything else. But that's not (laughs) entirely true. I'm a pretty good waitress. And I'm serious and caring in a first aid situation. I'm sure you're significantly, (laughs) uh, significantly more talented than that. But, But why writing? How did you get into it? How did you get the bug? Why writing? Well, I mean, I don't know if I really got the bug, but it was something I always did. I always wrote, if anything, I guess, to sort of expel all the turbulence inside my head. Both my parents are journalists. So I guess it was obviously in my world. It was part of my territory. But even that said, no one really expected me to become a writer. I don't think really anyone expected me to be anything. Uh, (laughs) um, (laughs) uh, It was, yeah, um, I just loved writing and that's all I really ever did and it sort of did really whittle down to that was pretty much all I was good at. And I find it really hard to comprehend things unless I write about it. It's a process for me. I have to unpack everything and I'm not someone who just gets my head around something without having to do the hard yards myself. So I think that was a big part of it as well. Is that where the enjoyment comes, the hard yards, the digging, the becoming the story, as it were? Yeah, I guess the enjoyment and also the um, wading into thick, wet cement and going yeah. <laughs> and, and um, wondering when I was, you know, going to be able to wade out of it. Yeah, I guess it's like that big tangle of that knot. It's can be exhilarating. It also can be incredibly banal. But it's yeah. um, when you just have those moments of, oh, and you're peeling another layer back. And that's really fun when you're like, okay, I, I think I'm getting it. I think I've got my head around the material now. Mm. And that's a good feeling. You've waded into a fair amount of concrete over the years, mm. Tasmanian forests, justice, the treatment of animals. But why this story specifically? Why Night Games? Well, before Night Games, it was a sort of investigation that I was... That I sort of fell into, um, there was a situation down in Melbourne where it kind of got dubbed the St Kilda schoolgirl and it was quite a trashy mm. story, to tell you the truth. Um, that was Kim Duthie and, and Ricky Nixon, wasn't it, the, the case you're talking about, the St Kilda schoolgirl? Oh, girl. yeah. It was just so, tr- I mean, it was incredibly trashy. Uh, yeah. It was a, a schoolgirl, basically, who got involved with an AFL footballer and she wouldn't let herself be discarded, basically. She didn't, she refused mm. to be thrown on the scrap heap and responded in, you know, a typical sort of not very dignified teenage ways, you know, responded via social media and photos and outrageous threats. But at the same time, I found it quite compelling because you could see the AFL with so much entitlement and was so sure of itself and its footing in the world and so just absolutely appalled that this squeaky little girl spoke back. Everyone refused to give this girl her humanity. They just kept saying that she was jilted and she was malicious and and slightly sinister. But 
when you dig into it, she was actually an athlete herself and she would have matched these boys up until a certain age. But whereas they had a path to follow, she had none. So I sort of looked at this dynamic and the, uh, the power imbalance and really explored it. And it was an investigation that got a lot of, you know, a big response. Um, a lot of women wrote to me saying, exactly, like we can only sort of fight back on this really immature platform, but the playing field is so uneven. So that sort of led me to look into more sort of sinister cases that had occurred. Decades of hush money, decades of just blocking people out, but this girl suddenly had new avenues with which to fight. Um, Mm. I guess social media was there and all these things that they had not quite cottoned on to. And um, that was really interesting. It was a really interesting moment in time, yeah. There's a great quote you used in the book from the American sports writer Robert Lipsight who said jock culture is a distortion of sport. And actually it's the mm. culture of sport that you're writing about, isn't it, rather than the actual sport itself. And I've always found it's quite an important distinction to make because people have found it very difficult to make that distinction at times, haven't they? They found it hard to quantify that, you know, you write about how defensive you had to become because some people were questioning your right and your motives to even write about sport at all. Did, did that surprise you? Yes and no. I mean, it doesn't surprise me, but it always, it knocks you a little. It's always a bit rattling. It seems that there's boundary writers everywhere who sort of sort of claim their territory and say, I'm the only person who can write about this. Who are you to say that you can write about this? And yeah, so when I approached this story, there were a lot of sort of football journalists and football writers and football lovers, basically, who said I had no right to um, enter their world. But, you know, I mean, you could just say in response, well, if I don't have a right, then why the hell haven't you written this story? Mm. Because it's there and it's been there for decades. Do you think it was because you were a woman or because you weren't part of that inner circle of A, football journalists, but B, for want of a better word, almost enablers that were maybe covering this up because there was access to interviews, stories that they perhaps wouldn't get if they did break the kind of code of silence? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can't really sort of, work in the inner circle and then break and then be a traitor because you won't be allowed back in the the locker room Mm. the next day. I think it was less because I was a woman, more because I was an outsider. But I don't see how, I really don't understand how an insider could have written it. When did you first get the idea for the book? So I guess there was the Kim Duffy, the St Kilda Schoolgirl investigation, which sort of planted those seeds of actually this is really interesting and there's lots of rumours and there's lots of allegations, yet no one sort of cracked the lid off it. And then a couple of court cases came about, which was incredibly unusual because when you look back into the past, there's definitely been instances that ought to have made it to court at least and never Mm. did. But, you know, at the turn of, you know, 2010s, things were starting to change. There was this sense of accusations were taken seriously and certain women weren't accepting hush money. For for those that haven't read the book, at its heart is a a rape trial of a young amateur Aussie rules footballer known as Justin Dyer that you attend. And it concerns events after Collingwood's 2010 AFL grand final win. The accuser, who you call Sarah Wesley, ended up in bed with, amongst others, a Collingwood player, Dane Beams. And she then Mm. left the party with Dyer and a sexual encounter took place. But I suppose the question before the court and at the book's heart is whether it was non-consensual and Dyer knew 
it was non-consensual. Is that a fair summation of the... Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, that's when the book became so much more than... It was looking at sport culture, but it was also looking at how rape trials occur and how they unfold. And it did make me realise that it it was a very shallow place for it uh, in the sense that the jurors were not allowed to be privy to events that had happened in the house before Justin Dyer and Sarah Wesley left the house. So there was this kind of great big black hole in the narrative that the jurors were never mm. allowed to be informed about. And that black hole involved AFL players and, again, the complainant, Sarah Wesley. And what I was looking at in Night Games is how you can slowly destroy someone's humanity. And at the end of a series of events, what agency or what sense does someone have to even begin to consent or not consent when someone has been treated in such a way that they're no longer sort of seen as a human. So it was a very um, odd rape trial in that sense because the jurors weren't allowed to know what would happen in the house beforehand. When the star players were removed from the equation. Yeah, they, they were removed from the equation, which was also very interesting because when it first hit the news, everyone was sort of had this cloud of suspicion and um, over their heads. But then as time went on and certain powerful QCs got involved, the only person left standing in the dock was this amateur footballer. And once he was in the dock, the QCs also walked away because he was an amateur he, he wasn't a big-time player at all, as you say, by any stretch. Was no. it? He was kind of a, a very peripheral figure, a, a sort of a hanger-on, I suppose, in, in many respects. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, that's how the judge referred to him as a hanger-on. Yeah. I don't think that's how he perceived himself. You know, he moved down from a Queensland town down to Melbourne with the hope of being spotted and moving up to the AFL. So he hadn't given up on himself, even if it looked as if everyone else had. Given the subject matter, how difficult was it to pitch to a publisher? We knew we were onto something after the um, first investigation was published because there was such a huge response to just the attempt at looking at it from another perspective, this sordid history and this history of pranks that become quite malicious once, you know, it gets dark. There was clearly a lot of personal experience in that response. I think a lot of women had experienced these very same instances, whether it be elite footballers or just young groups of men who are just high on their own entitlement. So, yeah, yeah, I think we knew there was a story. You start the book with a judgment in the case, the trial against Dyer, who'd originally been brought in as a witness but then found himself the prime suspect. What went into your decision to begin the book that way? The first thing was it wasn't a suspense novel. It wasn't like a thriller. It was just a way to show that this court is not where progress is made. It's just where things end up. So starting with the not guilty result of the rape case was just a way of making sure that no one got tied up in something that was never going to (laughs) happen. No one got really sort of like, oh, you know, is this going to be a story about justice and is justice going to be served and is this going to be a black and white case? It wasn't. There was a lot of nuance. It was very complex and it was a way of saying pretty much up front that some stories are just too complicated to be presented in such a way and also to show that there was a kind of performance in courts that, again, just can't capture what really happened. So it was a way to just almost get that out of the way. 
and of course. make sure that the readers could stay focused on what I thought was the real the real issues. What was it, because mm-hmm. you attended the, the case, what was it like being in that courtroom day after day? Mm-hmm. What was it like? It was confusing at times. It was sort of pathetic at other times when you sort of <laughs> have all these sort of kids giving evidence and they're all 19 and 20 and in their sort of lopsided suits and, <laughs> and you Not know, a couple. Yeah, totally. And then, you know, the, the one AFL player comes in with a swagger and he sort of spins on his seat in the dock and he addresses the courtroom as opposed to addressing the judge. Like it was just, it was just this sense of, um, the ridiculousness again and um and again there was the invisibility of the complainant she wasn't there mm. there was no one there for her apart from her counsel and you know so it really became very focused on the man in the dock i mean i'm not a sort of a vigilante it doesn't whatever he did you could tell he was suffering like deeply and it was distressing to see you know a man or boy, I don't actually think he was really a man. I think he was a boy. And he was so bewildered. He just couldn't understand why he was there. And I mm. thought that was really interesting. You got access to Justin, didn't you, whilst writing the book and during the trial. How did you get in contact right. and broach what you were planning? Oh, well, you do that thing, right? You sort of approach and you talk. And I guess if they're savvy, they don't talk back to you. <laughs> um, yeah. But they opened up to me which was obviously great for me as a journalist. I felt like it was risky for them and you had to keep reminding them that, you know, I'm taking notes here. And But, I mean, I guess in the sense that was, again, a point of fascination is that they just couldn't comprehend another perception. They just yeah. couldn't comprehend that there was another way to see the situation that they were in. There was just no other way to see what had happened rather than through their good guy eyes. And this particular family, it was a football family, three boys, and it was a family that believed in good girls and bad girls. And unfortunately, their son had got involved with a bad girl. You write, I'm supposed to be detached and not on anyone's side, and yet I got uncomfortably close to the defendant and his family over the three weeks. And it was really hard for me to see the trial in a black and white way. How difficult was that relationship to manage in terms of maintaining your objectivity? Um... Well, I think objectivity is something that you strive for, but I also think um, it's not entirely possible. And I also think that that's not really how I write. I will always write with trying to look through as many lenses as possible and, and have nuance and I'm not really someone to just line up people on either side of a trench and say good, bad, good, bad, good, bad. You can I'm sort like of see... <laughs> exactly. And, you know, you, we are complex human beings. We can have a lot more than one emotion at the same time. And I think that's, that's allowed. And it's definitely is something that I, you can intellectually know something while feel something quite different. And I think that's almost part of the, the story as well, is that for so long, people have talked about consent as just being this really logical thing but it's not logical and it's very difficult to comprehend. And no doesn't necessarily mean no in the sense that consent is not something that is a transaction. It's something that you can fall into and then halfway through find yourself wanting to pull out, but it's almost too late. And these were the issues that I wanted to explore. So 
the fact that I got close to Justin Dyer and his family was was fine in that sense. I don't think if you were to speak to them, I think they will say that it was a very bad mistake on their behalf and they regret it entirely. But mm. for me, it was a great place to explore. I want to touch on mm. consent in a moment, but I'm intrigued because you said you found him gentle and quiet and endearing and sort of hard to marry up with the image of what he was being accused of. And I remember reading mm. the book when it first came out and then flicking through it again over the weekend. And I, I always sensed in reading a sort of inner turmoil, I suppose, in yourself. Is that fair in terms of how you saw him on the one hand versus what he was up against? Mm, well, I felt, I mean, he was quiet and he did strike me as gentle he also struck me as incredibly immature and I think in a sense it was more that I just felt that, yes, in a way the responsibility was his but also there was a larger responsibility, a, a wider group needed to take for the position and the situation that he was in. So these footballers, I mean, they just when they graduate from high school, the rest of us, where our world expands, you know, you meet more people, there's more diversity but these football stars are sort of coddled, almost arrested in their development and they're cut off from not just female companionship but female friendship. There's this team that's moulded from the moment they start playing football and women aren't allowed in, female friends aren't allowed in. And often I'd get asked all the time from people like, what about the groupies, what about the groupies, as if groupies are only female and the groupies I saw were just men who would hang out in the locker room, board members, the CEOs, corporates, the sports journalists, and they're all surrounding these footballers and giving them permission to be entitled. And when I looked at Justin Dyer, I saw all that as well. And I saw that it would have been very hard for him to have a different understanding of the world. I thought he'd been given a shrunken opportunity, a shrunken kind of life, and he desperately wanted to be in the world of men. And the fact that he didn't see a female, a fellow female, as human, that he only saw her as something he wanted to get something from in order to be cheered on in his world of footy was just so sad. I just felt like it didn't all need to rest at his feet. I felt like the responsibility was far broader than just him. Men wanted to be part of that inner circle, the power, the sex, the fame, the kind of the walking into a, a club or a bar alongside a famous sportswoman when you're a kind of a, a nobody in inverted commas is, is a real thing, isn't it? It happens all the time. And it, I, I don't think, you know, it's clearly not just an Australian thing. We see it all the time over here, that sense of sexual entitlement in sportsmen. No, no, it's a, it's a, it's a universal book, that's for sure. There's a quote in the review of the book in the Sydney Morning Herald that says, Crean understands that gangbangs, rapes, alleged rapes and insults against women perpetrated by professional sport emanate from the same precious yet insecure narcissistic fear-riddled chemistry of teamwork that produces transcendental moments on the field. And I, I found mm. that fascinating because that sort of resonates very much with what comes out of the book. Is that a, a fair comment? Do you think that the fact that these guys are just together and away from reality the entire time, whether it's training, playing, on the bus, mm. out at night, at parties, yeah. those sorts of things, they just live by a totally different rule and everything builds to the big climatic moments, whether it's the last minute of a game or whether it's five men in the bedroom with one girl and everybody's in this together kind of thing? Yeah, definitely. I mean... 
I guess it's how to separate the poison from the magic. So I guess there's all all that sort of intense team bonding can create magic on the field in the sense that, you know, you can throw the ball and they don't even have to look. They know that so-and-so is going to be there because they're so well connected, they're so bonded. But I do find what's funny is that as professional sport has become professional and so intense and so um, such big money and such big stakes is that that's when you let off steam playing sport. But now it's this idea of you've got to let off steam after you play the sport and that's mm. the partying and the, the toxic pranks that happen on unknowing females in the early wee hours of the morning. That's where they're blowing off steam. It's almost because their lives have become so minutely ridiculous in a way, micromanaged and so elitist, they can't blow off steam in sport. They have mm. to do it in other ways, which is quite sad really because sport was meant to be that moment. How did you find his accuser, Sarah Wesley, who wouldn't talk to you? Did your relationship to Justin affect how you viewed her? Because as you write in the book, when the verdict comes in, you're sort of hugging the defendant's grandmother. I just wondered how that juxtaposition <laughs> worked for you. Yeah. Um, yes. Well, I mean, it's always a tricky line to play. Uh, if she'd been in the room and with her family it would have been a really difficult thing to try and make sure because everyone wants you to choose a side and, you know, that's just the the nature of journalism is that everyone's always fighting for you to see it their way and only their way. There's no middle ground anymore, is there? No, and with Sarah not being present and with my not being able to access her and it was more about trying to pull scraps of her from the case, trying to sort of build a picture of her and I guess in a sense also project other women's stories who did speak to me in lieu of not being able to speak to her. And I think that was the main criticism of Night Games, that I didn't get to speak to her, that her story was not told. But there's a lot of ways to look at that in a way that everyone's constantly looking at the female, aren't they? They're constantly looking at the female and telling her how not to get raped and then looking at her and trying to say, oh, well, she looked like exactly how she would have been asking for it and all that kind of thing. So, I mean, there was definitely an opportunity here to not look at, at the women and not look at the female, but to look at the man and look at the boy and to sort of really take him apart and look at his components and say, how did he become this way? What's the culture that made this happen? And that, I think, was the real opportunity. Mm. As you say, you didn't have access to her at all or even her voice because, am I right in saying the court was cleared when she gave her evidence? Yes, that's right. And there's an incredibly powerful line in the book in which you write, I could feel his suffering, I couldn't feel hers. When you look back Mm. now, sort of six years, eight years on, does that still bother you? Well, it doesn't still bother me in a singular sense, but in the sense that there's always someone who won't speak to you, who you feel like has a, a key or a crucial link that they w- will not share with you and that's their right, but you, you do feel a loss when it comes to being able to tell a story. At the same time, maybe there's a, a beauty to that in the sense that she did not let me put her down in ink. She did not let me sort of capture her which means that she still has the freedom to be whoever she wants and maybe there's a power in that for her whereas that's important um, too isn't it yeah I think so whereas I do think Justin Dyer got captured there and 
he got captured in the dock, he got captured in a novel, in a book, and she didn't. And maybe that's a real gift for her. Has there been any contact between the two of you in the years since the book came out? Has she read it? Have you ever had a conversation? No, nothing. No. Yeah. I also, I mean, and this is just pure projection, but I could see a bit of myself in her. I could see a bit of, you know, my friend's experiences in her. Like she felt very familiar, but you couldn't really say, you can't say those things because how was I to know? But she felt familiar. I felt like I'd, you know, seen her in my own friendship group. And, you know, you know that there's a lot of things going on at that age. It's very hard to find the words to say things and often you might cast around for other people's words. So I, I felt her, she was at such a crucial age, a crucial time in her life, trying to find her own voice. So I definitely felt generally warm about her without ever knowing her. I'm interested about stereotypes because there are some very interesting stereotypes that come from this story, I suppose, the women who are asking for it in inverted commas, around these sort of famous sportsmen and and the other that all men are terrible, all men are rapists, etc. How how mm. easy or difficult was it for you to navigate that sort of nuanced part of the story and avoid tarring everybody with the same brush? Oh, I hate stereotypes. I mean, there's a great um, there's a great essay by Zadie Smith called Fail Better, and she talks about cliches and stereotypes, not only as bad writing, but it's a completely unethical way to go about the craft of writing is to fall into a stereotype or two. It's just so disingenuous and lazy and immediately cuts any opportunity away for a sense of, for just a glimpse of self or reflection or truth or a way of connecting with a reader. So in a way, stereotypes weren't easy to avoid, but personally, I, I hate them. So I will work my hardest to break them down. But, I mean, yeah, but it was a book about sexual allegations. It was a book about a really ugly culture. It wasn't a book about the good boys. It wasn't a book about all those nice fellas out there. And, you know, that definitely uh, pissed off the AFL because, hey, this (laughs) this guy's really nice over here and this guy's really nice. He's got lots of, he's really nice to his sister and he's got lots of female friends. You're like, great, great. Um, Don't worry, that book will be written a million times over. what's happening over here, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you can't ignore what you're focusing on. You talked about the St Kilda schoolgirl story that I suppose first kicked this off, but how aware were you as you kind of got into this about this sort of, grotesque kind of culture of contemptuous sort of misogyny around sportsmen and the way they deal with women just how surprised were you at what you found when you started digging I think the weird thing was that I wasn't surprised oh, um, really yeah and it wasn't even that I wasn't surprised it was more that I wasn't what kind of made me really jolt was the fact that I wasn't surprised but I hadn't even questioned it beforehand I just kind of accepted it as the foundations of a large part of people's lives and this is just how you go through this is I'd somehow framed it as coming of age that's how I'd framed it whereas the more you explore it and the more you unpack it and really shine light onto it and ask you know the hard questions of yourself you realize that this is not coming of age this is cruelty and it's bullying and it's malicious I think that's what I found, bricks needed to be kicked out. Yeah, and I suppose if you thought that, there must have been a whole swathe of people who kind of accepted it as well beyond <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Sort of happened. There are many sort of jaw-dropping moments in the book, but the one that's always stuck with me are the recollections of Tony Wilson, the former 
mm. uh, the former Aussie Rules player, who talked about groupies handed round and sexual conquest scorecards and this this sort of free for all called Camel Night, which everyone gets Ugh. a hump. Everyone it gets a hump. Sh- it makes me Ugh. shiver just sat here saying it. I mean, <laughs> the instructions like bring two females who you don't care about. Yeah, other disgusting. than your wives and girlfriends. Yeah, I mean, just, yeah. Yeah. just horrific, but kind of yeah. just seemed blasé that this sort of happened all the time. Yeah, it was. It really was normal. It really was normal and expected. And groupie culture extended beyond, you know, the stadiums. It extended into the police force. Police, you know, being found and no one to just say, oh, come on, this is... This is so and so from from so and so. You know, he's a good guy. It's lads, or, lads, lads, lads. Yeah, it's just all lads. I mean, so the groupie it went into all different facets of society, and it's so bizarre because it's just this one lone female against this huge, influential, powerful force, and yet always they were always saying, "Oh, she could have said no, or she was asking for it," and it's like. Yeah. Can't anyone just see this sort of, this scrawny sort of one person against all of you? And, you know, so few had the heart and the ability to stand up for her. You have it over here as well. It doesn't even have to be sports people. You just go out to bars and you see it. She was gagging for it. We're all lads, you know. Yeah. Um, It's just, I mean, I I actually feel myself sort of shrinking as I'm talking about it. It's just horrendous. Um, Yeah. We touched touched upon consent earlier, and I'm sort of fascinated by your exploration of what you call the the grey zone, the area between rape and consent. Can you explain a little more of of what you mean by that for people who who haven't read the book? Oh, the grey zone got me into a lot of trouble. You know that. That was my next question. Um, well, I guess the grey zone is that um, it was a way of trying to go beyond the slogan of you know, no means no and the sooner men understand that, the better. But to me, it actually didn't lead females into a very safe place in itself because it did mean that if you didn't actually say no, the actual word, then you should still cop it sweet. Whereas basically what many women and girls would find is Life isn't like that. Life isn't a slogan. So they would find themselves having a fairly enjoyable moment with one player and then another player might enter the room and by that slogan she's meant to say no. Life doesn't work like that and it's more about people need to understand what power means and people need to understand what power they exude. So, I mean, a lot of men don't, for some reason, just couldn't perceive what five men might look like to one female. So it was more about unpacking consent and moving beyond consent, not is she okay with this, instead just stopping and saying, "Uh, guys, this is pretty shit. Um, (laughs) There's five of us in a room. There's one girl. She might even be smiling but we need to understand that smiling doesn't necessarily mean that you're happy. You might yeah, be petrified. Totally yeah, exactly. I often would think about that chimpanzee that was sent to the moon in the 90s. <laughs> or was it like, oh, no, and then the 60s or something. And everyone this... was like, look how happy the chimpanzee is because yeah. he was grinning. But 
animal behaviourists know that chimpanzees, that's their scared face. It looks like they're grinning, but they're petrified. So the chimpanzee we were sending to the moon was petrified, obviously, as if the chimp would be saying, woohoo, we're going to the moon. So, So it was more about, I just felt like the consent was a conversation that is absolutely necessary, but I felt like it needed to go deeper than that. 1961, Ham, the Astro Chimp, apparently. Yeah, right, thank you. Thank you for doing that. No, no worries. Yes. No, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> um, back to something far more serious. You said that you, you felt, a, a, and you write that you felt a knot of dread when you thought about how feminists and footballers would respond to your ideas about the grey zone, and you, you touched upon it just a moment mm. ago about the kind of criticism. What what criticism came your way? How did you... I mean, this happens all the time with all my work and I, I should just accept it. Both extremes get angry at me, which is, you know, maybe I should celebrate that. But, you know, obviously no, there was... The AF- yeah, there, obviously the AFL world was was pissed at me because, you know, <laughs> the, you know the money is lost in these kind of scenarios. But the, you know, feminists, you know, feminist academics, um, one particular wrote a piece saying that I was basically condoning violence against women and giving permission to commit violence against women. And that really frustrated me more because I was frustrated with the editor who allowed that piece to go through because in a way it was, it was sort of clickbait. And I remember calling the editor and I said, look, can you please show exactly where I condone violence against women because I think that would be really important. And he said, oh, no, you can just write a reply. And I said, no, I'm not giving you content publish something that's accurate, this is not a way for me, for you to inspire more content. And I think that happens a lot and it's um, an increasing thing that's frustrating. But, yeah, I mean, I was briefly upset by that, but then I started to get these different kind of messages and emails from these football coaches of boys' teams, under-15s and under-12s and under-16s, and they said, these sort of men, these these football coach men, and they're like, we've given a copy of your book to every player. Oh, really? Yeah, and I was like, oh, this is good. This is great. Yeah. This is what I want. I don't like. Who cares what some woman at some university is thinking in her office? I mean, when is she going to go to a party uh, with <laughs> all these these buffoons? And you know, and she doesn't need to know this stuff in a way. She doesn't need to arm herself up with these tools whereas this is what you want you want 15 year old boys to be reading this and asking these questions that was a good moment I was like okay this is fine hugely fulfilling I'd imagine yeah yeah were you writing as you went along or did you get to a point where you had everything you thought you needed and then you sat down and did it all in one go Hmm. I do I kind of do a bit of everything (laughs) I, I sort of write scraps and snippets as I go along and take lots of notes and then I'm reading hundreds of things as well and taking notes from there. And then I think when I feel as though I'm ready and in in that sense that I said earlier, when I feel as though I can contribute to a conversation, not just listen and that's when I feel like it's time to write. And then it's like, you know, a bit of a dog's breakfast. It's like looking at all my snippets and all my little bits of research and then going into it and making it fluid. At what point did you know you had something special, I suppose? I know it's difficult for writers to sometimes go, oh, yes, it is an amazing piece of work. But what you must have known at some point you had a really, really good book. Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't. Really? <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, that's, that's fascinating. No. 
You're the <laughs> no, first. Um, the, so this is episode seven. I think you're the first writer who said they didn't know they had something special on their hands. Oh no, I didn't. Which I, I don't, but thank I don't you know for saying so. Either you or them. So <laughs> interesting. Interesting. So how do you view it now? Then do you? I mean, do you look back oh. now and think I wrote a really great book, or is it just oh, something mean, that happened? Oh, no, I don't really look back at my work okay. and think that. I, I often look back and go, oh, I should have done that better. Oh, I could have articulated it that better or I could have been more even-handed with that interviewee or if anything, I'm hard on myself when I look back. Okay. Have yeah. you read it back? Do you read your work back? No, I would never do that. Okay. <laughs> um, I did um, uh, last year I thought, oh, maybe I should just do some media training because I was about to go in for another promotion battering. And um, my media trainer said, okay, well, what do you think when you listen back to yourself on radio or look on TV? And I was like, uh, what? You want me to look back <laughs> to listen to myself? <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, yes, how? Yes. And I, it was horrible. She made me sit through interviews and it was I was underneath the desk like, cringing in a in a ball in a ball rocking back and forth like it's it's not a pleasant experience it's, it's horrendous isn't it I, mean, I have to edit this <laughs> and i have to listen yeah. to it. i turned down the volume of my questions and then turn it back up again when we get to the answers. yeah totally it's I, horrible I, I, I feel your pain i feel your pain thank you um, i'm glad <laughs> i'm intrigued by where, where where writers write do you have a good writing place i, I interviewed donald mccray who was a two-time winner of the William Hill Sports Book of the Year Award and he has a sort of garden shed that he's worked in for sort of 25 years at the bottom of his garden which takes him sort of 12 steps to get to and is, has become his little sort of writing place. Do you have a, a specific <laughs> place or is it just somewhere comfortable where you kind of you settle down and could be the sofa, could be uh, a chair, could be wherever? Well, when I was writing night games, I didn't have anywhere. I just would, I had like a little place where I, sometimes I would sit on the couch or the floor or sometimes I would sit on the bed um, and type with a pillow underneath my laptop. Um, <laughs> so it was that was pretty uh, that was pretty medieval. Um, <laughs> I have school. a little yeah, I have a little study now. We basically moved so I could get a study, and it's very cute. It's uh, the person who used to live here. He was a tugboat driver. His study is still full of these little tags that say the Maritime News, the South nice. China Seas, Daily. It's a good little tugboat man's study, which I'm now nice. in. Nice. Most of the writers I've interviewed so far have felt sort of joy when they've got to the end of the book. They've written that last sentence knowing it's all over. I wonder how your emotions were when you finished Night Games, because I wonder whether there was a sort of a, a tinge of sadness given the world that you'd encountered and uncovered. Well, I don't really think there's ever a moment where I think I've written the last sentence because there's a big okay. editing process. Yeah, so I think probably the moment is when it goes to print. And, you know, it was pretty stressful because there was a few attempts at stopping it going to print from certain football clubs. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was quite stressful. What do I feel? I, I, I must sound like I'm really a person who finds it hard to find happiness. But I think I, I, have, a, I have a moment. I definitely have a Why moment of... Why are you a writer again? <laughs> I, I have a moment of relief. Yeah, it's gone to print. And then pretty much immediately I start getting extreme anxiety about <laughs> um, did I get anything wrong? Was this right? 
How, how is this going to be reacted to? What's going to happen? Is anything going to happen? What do I want to happen? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm the best person to live with, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm saying yeah, nothing. Yeah, sorry. I'm saying nothing. <laughs> I wonder, I wonder, now I've got to ask a serious question, you see. Now, did you, have you kept in contact with Justin over the period of time subsequent to the book, obviously having the relationship during the trial and, and around the trial? I wondered if you were, were still in touch with him. No, no, they were very upset, actually. It's one of those really difficult things when you're like, and I, it's understandable, like, of course it's upsetting to have a book written, but then there's also that weird thing of like, well, I told you that's what I was doing. What did you think I was doing? I think also they might have seen me as a backup, as like in light of if he was convicted, they might have seen me as like the justice story it's repellent sometimes to see yourself in print. So I understand that knee-jerk reaction. I do hope that maybe one day there'll be a sense of maybe Justin picking it up and maybe being a bit older and a bit wiser and a bit more open to a different way of seeing himself or who he was. And it does happen. I mean, I, I would often get people who would absolutely hate me when something comes out and send me the most horrible, horrible emails and really go, go hard. Mm. And then five years later, they might email and go, I reread that. That was actually quite good. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Thanks, yeah. And you're like, <laughs> you're like, okay, because you really went for my jugular. But anyway, that's cool. Like, and I do think things do take time. I think sometimes you're not always in, you're not in the right space to read something. And in five years' time, you might be. And, you know, there's nothing I can do. Only time can do that. I can't mm. do that. Yeah. Have, my final question is, has there been mm -hmm. a change in the culture in sport in Australia subsequent to the book coming out, or has it just shifted more underground? I think there definitely has been a change. The players, whether they, and the clubs, whether they agree or not with the reputation that they've accrued, in these particular issues, they are aware that they need to manage them and not slip into scandals and I'm not necessarily sure if it's a genuine change but they're aware of the blowback. I think the blokey sort of entitlement is still there in a way. It's still very privileged. Well, actually, in a way more privileged because a lot of the players 20 years ago actually came from the back blocks whereas now it's quite an elite and privileged profession and also quite controlled for fear of having someone who's a bit of a loose cannon. So a lot of the boys now are groomed from quite an early age. So, you know, in a way that's good, but in a way that's bad because sport was a way out for some people in some really impoverished conditions, but it also meant that they had some sort of firecrackers on the board Whereas now it's a very groomed, elite, privileged profession and it's micromanaged and the scandals are less in a way. But there's also something that's been lost. So in a way, that's why I say not sure if it's genuine because I think sport has an opportunity to lift people from their struggles. But in a way that might have been cut off in order to keep a clean sort of public relations face and that's yeah. not necessarily the path that I would would yeah, want not, sport to go down. That's not changed though either, is it? It's just um 
making ourselves look good in a different light kind of thing. Yeah, yes. Anna Creed, it's an incredible <laughs> story. Thank you very much indeed for sharing it. Thank you. Thanks so much, Simon. Anna's book, Night Games, Sex, Power and a Journey into the Dark Heart of Sport is available online and obviously in a number of major bookshops still here in the UK. It is an extraordinary and very necessary look at some of the grimmer reaches of the male psyche. That's it for episode seven of Sports Pages. Don't forget to listen back to last week's show with Pete Davis and arguably the greatest book ever written about football, all played out on the story of England at Italia 90. Thanks again to Anna. I'll be back next Tuesday with another author. See you in seven days' time. 